This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. Everyone knows that they're still close and friends and like play together like you're saying, but um, that they haven't done that. Uh, I don't know. I respect that a lot. It's hard to stop once you're in it, you know? And when it becomes part of your fiber and your work, um, it's something I grapple with a lot with my own music. Of course, I love playing music. I love playing shows. But this lifestyle, I mean, it's nice to have, uh, be able to step into your own space too, you know. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. American musician, composer, curator, and visual artist Stephen O'Malley is best known for his work with Sun, a long-running drone black metal band which performs at extreme volumes for lengthy periods of time, invoking in their audience a shared trance state. In addition to Sun, O'Malley records and performs in drone doom band Conate and has collaborated with Scott Walker, the late Alvin Lussier, and extensively with Callie Malone. This interview was recorded live at the Big Ears Festival in March of 2023. The first song O'Malley chose as being formative for him was Give Me the Cure by Fugazi. to be on your podcast I you know said yes right away because uh, or I thought I thought I would say yes right away because I love doing radio and have DJed radio shows a lot over the years and done playlists and all of this stuff and I just love records and music and sharing stuff I'm into and rediscovering stuff but your request with this one really uh, I, I, I've thought about it for a few weeks it was um, it really uh, was a challenge for me to try and pinpoint music that was um, uh, transformative or important in a bigger arc, but not necessarily like the favorite records, like the Desert Discs go-tos and stuff. And um, I realized it was, it, was really, it was quite difficult to, or not difficult, but <clears throat> the things that come to mind were... Um, evasive (laughs) 
But a lot of things when in the formative time of being a teenager, discovering um, what music is, live music, um, records, underground culture and stuff come to mind as, of course, being transformative because you find the gateway and you go through and you're in the kingdom. Um, in this case, growing up as, as a kid, as a teenager, I... Uh, I was growing up in Seattle. I was in high school, um, of course, as a teenager. Uh, but uh, 14, 15, I became friends with a bunch of uh, punks at my school who were um, in hardcore bands, straight-edge hardcore bands, um, specifically a band called Undertow from Seattle. And those guys, we we connected because we were not the... We were the people in the music, but we weren't like getting stoned behind the school or partying. And um, there were house shows and stuff in, in kids' garages and in pool halls. There's a place called the Party Hall downtown Seattle, which had a lot of concerts. This is my first uh, experience going to a concert on my own that wasn't a um, place like Tennessee Theater you know, with my family or even with friends, like DIY culture, I guess you would call it, especially back then. And um, uh, one of the bands I saw back then, like a lot of us at this age, was Fugazi. Um, they were touring a lot at the time in 90, 91, 92. And I got to see them a few times, and they—they're—anyone who saw them is, you know, their their energy on stage is incredible, incredibly inspiring too. And also the <clears throat> Ian and Geet speaking to the audience, what they what they would say, and then how the audience would react, and how how that um, edge of the stage where the world was the the musician like on the altar that we were all adoring how that edge um wasn't really there uh one of the shows i saw i remember vividly was um at a festival in olympia washington put on by k records or kill rock stars or maybe both I, um and uh they played at a place called the olympia theater a matinee show um, but the theater had the Iron Curtain down, so it was only on the stage, and it was like two, two in the afternoon, and just a bunch of kids there in the band, like right there, with all that energy and stuff. But um, yeah, over the years, of course, um, Discord um, and Ian and Guy and Joe, um, there, I, I was reflecting on this, like. Maybe this this sounds so obvious to say, but their ethics and the way that they've um, uh, in the '90s kind of built built up their community, um, supported their community, especially in DC with Discord early, and um, inspired kids around the states, probably in Europe too. I guess I guess they toured in Europe a lot then too. It's just incredible. And I, I see reflections of that with the work I've done with Greg. With early, early on in Southern Lord, I was really involved, especially, and also with my own label. Although the music may be, like with Ideologic Organ, the music is more, I, I, I feel focusing on um, composers who are conceptual and um, artistic in their practice. I might not have a, lot of other outlets to release music. Um, I still feel like the DIY underground, like commun community-based grassroots thing is, that's the fiber that builds up all of this furniture that we're able to sit on and stand on. And this festival has that too, you know? Even if Ashley Caps is like, uh, super successful commercially, he was able to take the uh, froth of the that success and, you know, cultivate this really, really special festival. In the States, there's nothing like this. And um, so it kind of links, so, you know, it continues to link. <clears throat> and I'm not saying Fugazi is like the Moses of my music, but um, 
just with reflection, I haven't listened to them in since 20 years, I guess, before last week. But they're one of those bands that just thinking about not, not only the music or the people or the artwork and stuff, but their the, uh, mental, ethical um, foundation and buildup has been really formative for um, a lot, a lot of people. And I really respect them more now than ever, maybe. And going back to them, too, it's like, wow, they're really fast. <laughs> I remember them being like kind of like a dub, <laughs> slow family. When you're 15, like everything is really <laughs> different. Have you explored like this meta metabolic slowing of perception a lot? So, <laughs> well, after Minor Threat, it was like you know, uh, it was slower, but yeah, uh, right, yeah, 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 in the context of hardcore music and also, uh, bring, yeah, bringing in dub, uh, polyrhythms, uh, abstract, like f almost free improv at times with the guitar solos and stuff, also performance art. I remember Guy uh, throwing the guitar on the ground and like stepping on it and sliding his SG and stuff. He didn't do that, you know? Didn't have the resources to like <laughs> throw the BC Rich on the ground. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly, after Minor Threat. And they were, and that's another thing, I was speaking with Regina about this. Um, a little bit the other day. She was helping me with counsel about like, pick out three tracks, don't pick out 10 tracks for this show. And we were talking about Fugazi, I was like, oh yeah, they were, they were loved and they had a huge audience obviously and they had major, major success for, uh, on any scale as a band. Of course they kept that within their community uh, and themselves kept it DIY. They didn't sign to the Geffen or the RCA or whatever, or Sony, um, and uh, returned all of that into the, that world, all of that, well, a lot of that success. But they were, yeah, even Fugazi was controversial <laughs> in the hardcore scene. <clears throat> then we were speaking about, oh, the go-to for Fugazi is repeater, at least for me. Like, and that, that was like the rain and blood of Fugazi. And um, In on the Kill Taker came out. And then I, I had forgotten about this, but that was kind of a controversial record when it came out. Like, oh, it's getting a bit more progressive or polished or something like that. And those hyper specific distinctions on a really niche. Uh, <laughs> type of music or something I think a lot of us can relate with. <laughs> but um, thinking about Fugazi as being, um, yeah, controversial within a scene somehow, you know, people were dropping off because of that polishedness. In fact, they were probably just following their heart and using their ex experience and uh, education and resources to build better art or progress their art. No, uh, yeah, I mean, this has come up a couple of times with different guests on the show, and maybe just because I keep bringing it up, but the, especially in the, in the 80s, which is sort of like the tail end of the 80s is when they started coming out, is like the, the rules about punk and metal and what was what and how you couldn't, you know, as the term was at the time, crossover. That was a big deal. It's like, you know, when Black Flag started growing out their hair and smoking weed, it was like, you know, scramble the jets, you know. Um, and um, yeah, so I mean, any time anyone did something that was not following the rules, as stupid as it seems now, that was, you know, people got upset. Mm -hmm. And, um, but you know, as I think, you know, history, if we can call it that, has shown, um, that's dumb, and Fugazi were right as they were about so many things, probably most everything, so. Well, also, growing up in Seattle, there was another band in the punk scene that was really influential in parallel, which was the Melvins, who were, um, yeah, they did that on purpose, though. They were like, oh yeah, we can't, uh, we're playing, they were like a, almost like a, 
power violence speed uh, hardcore band until like 1987. And then they're like, okay, yeah, my, my war came out and we'll, we could do that. We're gonna play it very slow and stuff. Um, and, um, you know, my own experience also in punk and hardcore was, oh, I was a long hair. Uh, I was in the Slayer when I was a kid, uh, early on, like many long-haired teenagers, but then I was discovering um, death metal, and there were no one, or there was no one into that in my community, except for two guys from the hardcore scene, the drummer of Undertow, Ryan Murphy, and um, also this, uh, this other guy who was kind of like the older brother for all of us named Ron Gardepi, rest in peace. Um, he was a singer in a, a bunch of hardcore bands and, and uh, straight edge bands, including Brotherhood, um, which was probably the most famous. But <clears throat> yeah, we were, we were discovering death metal and it was kind of in, in, in parallel in a way with the underground sort of excavation thing and um, but Ron was a bit older, so he grew up in a little bit in the 80s, well, in the early and mid-80s. So after we were getting into our deaths and Morbid Angels and Earache Records and stuff, Ryan and I, um, Ron was like, oh, yeah, that stuff's great. You should check out Nuclear Blast Records, which had all the B and C rate bands, uh, death metal bands. But then he's like, oh, you need to check out, like, Thrash and... Like, you like Slayer and stuff, but do you like Celtic Frost and Merciful Fate and Hellhammer and Crater and stuff like that? So there was a bit of crossing there, but even metal was not really in the picture. Now, uh, yeah, in the early 2000s, that crossover like melded and finally formed a whole nother um, world of acceptance, I would say, you know, between punk and metal, but... Yeah, playing slow, playing fast. That was controversial at one point. It's kind of, kind of amusing to think about. Now. Right, right. Mark my words. You don't, I, I believe that you will believe me, but if you believe me, the way people talk about can now, someday people will talk about the Melvins. Mm -hmm. So mark my words. Yeah, I'm wearing a Noi shirt right now, and... Um, uh, they were, yeah, they were a bit more strict than can somehow, if you could use that word for them. But can, yeah, I, I was thinking about can too, like, it would be great to be in a band that was respected like can later. And the Melvins, I would agree, you know, like really respected. Wasn't, you know, you didn't make a million dollars off it or whatever, but as a, as a body of art, a, a life, and, I have my favorites and, and periods of dips and stuff like that, but that's a good good point. Um, I'm curious about how something like Fugazi, and clearly, I mean, you had a lot of other things kind of feeding into, you know, your life and, and your brain, and um, how did this sort of intersect with your own playing or starting to play? I mean, were you already... Um, playing guitar, playing music at that point? I was playing music, but I didn't... <clears throat> I, w I was playing... Actually, I was in a Scottish Highlander pipe band <laughs> when I was a teenager. <laughs> playing the bagpipes, the Scottish pipes. Band. That explains so much. <laughs> uh... Yeah, but I didn't play guitar until a bit later. But my first band uh, was, I was in high school still. It was with the guitar player of Undertow, um, Mark Holcomb, and my old buddy, Zach Morrow, was playing drums, I was playing bass, and the band was called Big Dog. And uh, yeah, it sounded like the Melvins. Like Mark was really into quicksand. Uh, Zach, the drummer, was definitely into Dale Crover, and I was into, yeah, it, the Melvins were a big influence from day one, from the first thing. But I didn't start playing guitar until later. I was 18 or 19. Um, but, yeah, I, the Melvins are so formative, it's, a, it's almost like 
irresponsible to even verbalize it <laughs> somehow. Um, I'm, I know this is a rich vein from past shows, so there's Big Dog, other <laughs> sort of pre-renowned pre uh, band names. Uh, Burning Witch had a lot, my, my band Burning Witch, uh, which is already a funny band name. Uh, we had a lot of like other names too, but I, I'm going to pass on okay. saying All right. this. <laughs> Most bands have like a, you know, shoebox of papers with names in it that are just horrible. But Big big Dog, Big Dog, actually it was a little bit like a pre precursor to Sun because it was two G's. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. Um, coming back to Fugazi just really quickly, and then I, I, I want to talk about um, the other tracks which are really interesting. Um, you talked about sort of their ethics and their um, and all the things that they built in terms of community and the things that they changed, and I think that's really a resonant point. Um, and it makes me think about touring, which I think of all the things that they did and sort of changed and like sort of tried to redefine, that's the thing that is, it's like if they came back now, mm -hmm. and I know that they still play together sometimes, mm -hmm. um, and probably don't have any interest in actually playing for other people again. But um, if they came back now, that I think would be the biggest challenge, <laughs> is to try to find a way to work within the way touring works now. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real thought experiment to imagine them integrating in the way the music business is now, which is so different than then, and that, that they've I mean, it's been talked about endlessly, I guess, but they decided to stop touring. And they, if they came back, they could make a lot of money, obviously, and headline all the biggest festivals, big, huge venues and stuff on a scale they hadn't done before. And a lot of bands do that and do it well, too. Unwound did it recently. Um, I didn't see those shows, but I, I heard they were really... <laughs> moving, you know, um, it, it's quite, uh, interest. I mean, of course, every band stops for other reasons, you know, that are not, um, linked only to the, uh, you know, American small business corporate model of running a company type of thing that involve that is part of doing music too. Um, but it's yeah, it's very remarkable that they're there's I don't know. I respect that a lot. It's hard to stop once you're in it, you know, and then when it becomes part of your fiber and your work, um, it's something I grapple with a lot with my own music. Of course, I love playing music. I love playing shows. But this lifestyle, I mean, it's nice to have. Uh, be able to step into your own space too, you know. Like a lot of a lot of people in the pandemic, that that was the bright side of that for me. But um, to have those months, you know, of of uh, solace or quiet away from that, but um, it's it's incredible to be able to come here and do all of these you know, challenging musical, or these musical projects. That, big years I've played, I was thinking about it, I played here with almost all of my music. KTL played here, Sun played here. I played here with Alvin Lussier. I played um, with uh, Dumitrescu music here. Played solo, played with uh, Heino San, with Nazareth. I, I mean, it's like, to be able to do that in a, um, parallel community and cross with that. All of those things are incredible. And Fugazi, I think, was also like moving around the country and moving in Europe and crossing these communities together, you know, like this web of things. But yeah, to step, the, the, I don't know exactly the story of when they stopped or why, but <clears throat> yeah, of course, um, that they have not. Um, uh, reaped a uh, fortune out of a reunion or something like that. Uh, different types of fortunes, financial and um, artistic too. Um, 
It's really remarkable, and I really respect it. They seem like pretty happy dudes. I mean, I don't really know them, but having had them on the show, they're like, yeah, you know, good. Yeah. One time we were playing at the Black Cat in, uh, I think it was the Black Cat in uh, D.C., and Ian came to the show, and uh, because um, our we were playing with Son. Toss Nevenhues plays Moog and Son. He's an old school, late 70s punk from Amsterdam. But he went to D.C. in the 80s and, and uh, stayed for a year or something with, with those guys and in that community. So they're old friends. So Ian, and Ian knows a lot of other people associated with Sun, too. He came to the show, and it was winter, and he had a huge parka on because it was freezing. And we, um, we, we asked him, oh, would you introduce us <laughs> on stage? Oh, no, it was 930 Club, not Black Cat. Um, and he's like, yeah, sure, but I want to wear a robe. We're like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Whatever you want, man. And uh, so we, had, we have spare robes. With son after a few incidents that happened in the past. Uh, and so we took one out, and here you go, and... And he didn't take off this massive parka. He just put it on over the top. <laughs> Barely fit. Yeah, and then he went out and said some poem that was really kind and funny and cool. And um, when he was on stage, too, I was like, this guy's been on that stage, 930 Club? Like, how many times has he been standing right there with the mic, you know? It was really, really amazing that He's like somehow associated with our band, like this constellation of things uh, revealing itself at that moment, you know. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS, a collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org, or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. Established in 1996, Royal Books is a seller of rare books and paper specializing in literature, cinema, music, and the arts. From Cassavetes to Ida Lupino, from New Wave to Warhol, you will find an ever-expanding selection of first editions, original film scripts, vintage photographs, posters, and 20th century Americana. Visit us online at royalbooks.com or visit our store on any weekday between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. The second piece of music O'Malley chose as essential to forming his sensibilities was Acid Udon by Pita. Uh, uh, he he's someone I, I've had the fortune to work with uh, quite a lot for a long time. Um, yeah, he passed away in 21. Uh, 
but he left a uh, body of music that I think was um, underappreciated or maybe just unknown, you know, also. Um, and, but very iconic in its um, presentation. And I think that track is one of, it's an example of that. Like that motif he used not only in Acid Udon, but in some of the music we did together for theater, for his live, on some other albums. Um, and the, the um, structure of that, uh, I just, it, it, I was listening through, I, I wanted to talk about him just because it's, it's one of those meetings you have in your life that just profoundly affects everything for over a decade or more, you know, creative, artistically and stuff. We did a lot of things together, a lot of music and a lot of traveling and living together. Um, but I wanted to choose something that really brought his spirit up too. And, and that one actually is a bit tame because he would be <laughs> very uh, explosive as well. <laughs> and it does explode later, that, that track. But I met him in uh, uh, 2003. Sun was doing our first European tour. And we were trying to, there was a guy from Switzerland named Monster who approached us and offered to book a tour for us. And we were invited to play at a festival, All Tomorrow's Parties in um, England. I've told this story a million times, but I'll, I'll tell it again on the radio. Um, um, that festival, as you know, was curated by an artist every episode and had an incredible lineup too. I think it, uh, a lot of parallels to this festival as far as you know, what you could find under one weekend or the names you could find under one, one weekend. But that particular one was curated by Aw Tecker. So they invited Mego, a bunch of Mego artists. And Mego was um, Peter's record label that he started with um, Raymond Bauer and Tina Frank in um, mid-90s. And uh, or late 90s, and um, it was uh, a label that they made for themselves and their friends, a very DIY operation, not unlike what we were just talking about, I think. Um, but a lot of the, their music and their friends' music was computer music or cracked computer music. And um, in any case, all of these guys, or mainly guys except for Tina and a few others, Noriko, were at um, ATP um, performing. And that lineup of, of that year was, it was an insane lineup. Parmigiani was playing, um, obviously Autechre, Sun Earth, um, the Magic Band, Hecker, um, a bunch of Detroit techno guys were there. Um, many, many other names. Um, but during that, and so we booked this tour parallel to that because they would pay the flights over and that was kind of the key to getting to Europe. We were playing in Vienna and uh, Graz in Austria and Monster called me up. He's like, who, is there anyone you'd like to ask to be on the bill? I was like, oh, I think those Mego people are in Vienna. Yeah. Maybe maybe PETA could come. So um, he said yes, but his his um, his responses were so short. We were I mean it was 2003, so email was the main thing then. But it was still like kind of like writing letters to each other the way you used email then, right? Remember? And uh, but his his responses were like one sentence with like five words. That was it, no signature, no like hello or anything. And then silence, so we didn't know if he was interested or not. But he showed up at the Graz show. And that was also the show that um, our friend um, Attila Chihar, who was, um, was, ended up being the singer of Sun for many years and doing several records. That was the first show we met him too. 
so they both came to the Graz Austria show, which had a, a smaller audience than this room. And um, Peta played, and it was like we hit it off like crazy and partied until four in the morning, and with Attila and Peta and those guys, and then um, stayed in touch and, and played a few other shows too. Played in Vienna, um, and then played this ATP thing together. And then uh, later that year, Peter, or the next year, Peter was talking about some stuff he did with uh, dancers, like he was working dance pieces. And I didn't really understand it, you know, what he was talking about. I didn't have any experience with that. Um, dance was like Swan Lake to me. That's what I thought. I, I was totally inexperienced. Um, and then 2005, he was he introduced me to a choreographer he was working with named Giselle Vienne. Uh, they came to our show in um, Geneva, and Peta sat in with Son. He had sat in a few times with us uh, by that point with his laptop, his like plastic power book, where he would um, turn on the microphone and just like f feed back the whole situation through his super collider shit. <laughs> it was really gnarly and cool. And uh, But he introduced me to this choreographer who told me, like, oh, yeah, the dancers, um, we were warming up on playing Sun. And I was like, oh, well, I, I don't understand what that means <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, you barely move when you're playing um, and then Peter, eventually, a few months later, asked me, like, oh, we're, gonna, we're working on a new piece with this choreographer. Do you wanna, does Sun want to work with this? I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think the other people would understand, or I don't even know. But maybe I could, you know, we're coming to Europe to do another tour. Maybe I could see one of these shows and see what it's like. Maybe I could, do, you know, I'd like to work with you and stuff. And so I did, and uh, I came to Paris before a tour and saw this uh, piece that they had made together called On, uh, on, on Belle Enfant Blonde, a young, beautiful, blonde girl. Um, and uh, it kind of blew my mind. It was just like structurally something I'd never experienced before. And it was like a European performing art on stage with like everything you could imagine with that, but really serious and inspiring and um, yeah, I walked away from it and then uh, we made a plan to get together that summer in France and write some music together. And that was the first collaboration with Peter in uh, middle of 2006. And basically we worked together for 15 years like all the time. I mean, I have a lot of collaborators have been very blessed to encounter incredible, incredible artists and humans and musicians and co composers and on a collaborative basis and to make, to be creative with and to various degrees. But PETA was, he was the main, um, he was my main, partner in crime for a long time. We did a lot of lot of music together and stuff. And we also did a label together. We did, um, in uh, 2010, he, Peter came into some inheritance, I think, and um, had a chance to sort of make a business decision with his label, which he ran by himself, all aspects, from, from, uh, managing the production and A&R, all the way to like taking the packages to the post office, doing all the accounting, everything by himself. It's insane uh, it, it, to think about how much work that was. And, and also managed to have his family and his own music and his friends and drink a lot of beer and uh, everything else. Um, but he, uh, he, he had this idea like, oh, there's all of these musicians that I am friends with that I put out their music, what, maybe we could do this kind of sub-label thing where Mego handle is the umbrella and it's like the family of labels like Mute did, you know. He was really inspired with Blast First, Grey Zone, and stuff like that, you know. Um, 
Um, and uh, so he invited me to uh, be, be a curator of one of those, and we developed Ideologic Organ Records, and um, that's been a really amazing project. Um, it, it was to do with him, but we also uh, have been able to continue that um, um, after restructuring, after he passed away, and uh, Mego, uh, yeah, dissolved in some sense. Um, but Peter's music is so uh, uh, specific, I think, to his personality and um, has such character with his spirit. Like anyone who's met him and hears his music will instantly understand, you know, this part of his, like... Um, over-the-top attitude <laughs> about things, but at the same time being also conservative in a certain way and composed and... Um, he told me once, like, he used to love flying, and for several years he was... He's very obsessive. And when he was a kid, he used to walk around North London writing down all the license plate numbers in a notebook. And then he got super into... Um, catalog numbers. So when you talked about music, he would just say the catalog number. He wouldn't say the title. <laughs> I was like, well. And I, I don't remember anything except for like the cover of the record. I can't even remember the artist usually. But, uh, but he, he was also, so this obsessive attitude uh, developed a lot in Mego in a very inspiring way. Like he would always... Um, uh, that catalog number would also flow over to the events he he produced. So each event would have a catalog number as well. Um, but it also flowed over in, I think, in this way, like in the early or the late 2000s, he got obsessed with, um, because we were flying a lot more and doing a lot of touring with this theater stuff, but also with KTL, late 2000s and early 2010s, is that what you call it? And uh, so he started accumulating miles and getting these like status. And then it was like, oh, I'm gold <laughs> with Sky Team because we were flying on Air France a lot. But then he switched over to miles and more with Lufthansa and became gold. And then at one point, Christian Fenez, who also lived in Vienna and was like one of Pete's best friends, a good friend of mine, incredible guy. Fenez, he lost his status, so Peter was like, ah ha ha, Fenez, he has to go to Starbucks now <laughs> at the airport. Because <laughs> these guys would take the earliest flight possible uh, back from the show, you know, like just get home but have beers at like six in the morning at the airport. So. But uh, yeah, he got really into that. That was really funny. Um, I'm just being nostalgic now, but I wanted to play some of his music on the radio. And uh, I, I was happy to play some of his music um, at the museum too. Um, the, the piece I was diff diffusing, as you say, was um, a score we made together for one of those theater productions, This Is How You Will Disappear. And there's some really, there's some KTL stuff where we're both playing in that score, but then there's some discrete PETA music in there. And uh, one particular piece, uh, Callie and I were talking about a bunch. It's, a, it's kind of a pop song in the middle. Um, it just has this you know, his spirit in it. It was great to bring that back because KTL played here too. Yeah. And he played solo here at Scruffy's, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. I couldn't help but notice that you kind of alternated between referring to him in the past tense and the present tense. Um, yeah. Oh, you know, it's that thing like uh, with, with uh, yeah, people exist in your mind and your in yourself as well you know and uh, and, and uh, that's the thing with this music I can help uh, by by 
by diffusing this, one of the, my main my prerogatives is the legacy of his music, like Peter's music, because uh, that, that's, that's, that's his legacy, and it's, it's amazing. So I want to, that's alive, you know, that can, that can be enjoyed and experienced and um, en engaged with emotionally, intellectually, and there's a lot there. He did a lot of amazing work, and uh, a lot of it is just, was on that DIY level almost, you know. He didn't really care about being famous or something like that. He was, oh, another, another anecdote about traveling in him was he was very happy to be like, look like a businessman. That's the way he put it. He's like, yeah, I got this jacket. You know, I go, I go through the priority line <laughs> and I go in the lounge, you know, and I'm got my hair cut and shaved and everything like, like I'm a businessman. He's, it's like an undercover, like a spy or something, command, commando, because underneath him he's a mutant, you know? Like, <laughs> like the, the track Acid Udon. Acid is a term that those mega guys use a lot. Acid, that's acid, mate. Techno, mate. <laughs> you know? But Acid Udon, I know, I. I I think that has to do with a restaurant in Shinjuku, this udon restaurant just north of the station that we would go to. Oh, this, this udon's acid, mate. <laughs> just make a song about it. The final piece of music O'Malley chose as being crucial to him was Pierre Sacré slash Hazard and Tectonics by Yanku Dumitrescu. I was introduced to uh, Dumitrescu by Trey Spruance, actually, from uh, Secret Chiefs and Mr. Bungle. Um, he was playing in a, Trey was playing in a band called Asba for a few years with um, an old friend of ours, Stuart Dahlquist, who um, um, was the bass player of Burning Witch, and he was involved with Son in the early days a bit. And Trey was, and then he formed this band Asva in the mid 2000s, I think. And uh, we played some shows with them with Conate, a rock band I had uh, back then. And <laughs> I'm sorry, just you describing Conate as a rock band. It is, <laughs> but 
Go, um, please continue. <laughs> but we, we always thought Con 8 was like slow ACDC, actually. Okay, I can see it. I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> um, so we were in San Francisco or something, and Trey was talking about this guy, Dumitrescu, and I thought it was a band name or something. Sounds like, like a Doom band, obviously, like from Romania and stuff. I'm like, oh, you have to check this out. I'll bring you a CDR. There's this piano piece, um, and then this double bass piece. There's a double bass piece called Medium 2. I didn't understand this at the time, but after I did. And the piano piece was Pierre Sacre, and that's... Um, that's Yonku actually performing solo or playing piano with the contact mics and piano feedback. But Medium 2 is uh, another piece he wrote for a solo double bass, which is, it sounds like guitar feedback and noise and com digital computer music and stuff. Oh, in a way, it's a kind of simile. So I got really into this CDR right away and Trey. Um, thanks to Trey for that introduction. Um, I didn't really follow it or, uh, you know, research him too much at the time. I found some CDs <clears throat> through forced exposure. I guess I was living in the States at the time. Um, and all of the Yonku Dumitrescu CDs um, uh, were released. Uh, uh, what was the name of the label? It was, it was their own label, I found out. But they would, uh, on the front cover, they would have type around the edge like a frame with all of the distributor names. So forced exposure, modular, you know, like uh, all of these dis um, distributors, more music and all these things. Um, um, yeah, one thing led to another over the years. And um, I went to, uh, in 2006, actually right after I did the first session with PETA, I was in France and I was supposed to go to Israel to play shows with uh, Oren and Barchi and Attila Chihar and this trio project we were going to do. And um, there was some conflicts happening in, like, political and military conflicts happening at the time. So it was like, are you going to go or not? Um, but I ended up going, and we ended up playing shows. And I met tons of people in, in uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem at the time. Uh, at that time. And uh, one of those people was uh, this guy named Ilan Volkov, who um, was part owner of a place called, uh, a venue called Live Antin 7. And he was also a conductor, or he is a conductor. He's a maestro and um, a really amazing guy. He works with the BBC Scottish Orchestra with proms. He does freelance conduction around Europe and the world with different, different orchestras. And he also produces, now he produces a festival called Tectonics Festival, which is a kind of what do you call it, itinerant festival that appears in different um, cities or within other festivals. In any case, um, uh, Oren and I were spending a lot of time with him while we, while we were there, and then subsequently, and he was asking me, like, oh, I had this idea that I would... He, he really champions um, under... Um, represented composers like he was one of them he really championed Alvin Lussier in the last 15 years and helped support his music in a bigger way um, but he had this idea that he wanted to have a repertoire for electric guitar for Oren and I by um, um, asking some of these composers who he was in touch with and stuff. Elon's a brilliant guy. He's a kind of prodigal guy. He was in his 30s at the time, but he knew everybody from Jacob Ullman to Dumitrescu, Catherine Lamb, and every like all of these people he was working with and does work with now. But um, he's like, do you know Yonku Dumitrescu? I'm like, wow, I'm a, I love that music. He's like, oh, yeah, OK. And then about six months later, he called me up and he's like, why don't you come to Jerusalem? 
we're uh, bringing Yonku and his wife, Anna Maria Avram, over for a series of concerts with the Hyperion Ensemble, which was the name of, uh, <clears throat> I later learned, it was, is the name of Yonku's ensemble that he had to create in the 80s because his music wasn't um, uh, folded into the accepted like cultural music in Romania in the, that communist period. Although it wasn't ex excluded as profane or whatever, the, that type of thing, which Radulescu apparently was. But Dumitrescu was kind of accepted, but he couldn't access the ensembles. So he formed his own ensemble at the time, which is an amazing DIY thing to do in this Soviet period. Um, but he kept that name. They were going to reform the ensemble with a few Romanians um, from the original one and a bunch of Israeli musicians and me. And uh, so I, I'm like, yeah, I'll go do that. And uh, <laughs> it's one of those incredible things about music, you know, like what situations do you end up with and who do you meet? And these um, star systems that like line up in these ways, it's amazing. And we hit it off great. He's a unique individual. And uh, um, to my surprise, a lot of the music is kind of like free improv with a conductor, like a dancer. And he's kind of a dancer. How amazing dancer in his conduction, and it's, it's a bit shamanic and sorceress, but also kind of amusing. And he tries to dictate things, but he uses incredible language like, oh, it should sound like 200 million years ago <laughs> in the foreign star systems of Alpha Centauri. Okay. Like a <laughs> clarinet player. <laughs> but like PETA, like his spirit and personality is so embedded in the music somehow, even if it is, quote, improvised somehow. It instantly sounds like him. Um, and Yonku, and I, and Anna Maria, his, his um, who rest in peace as well, Anna Maria Avram, um, uh, we did a lot of concerts together around Europe and stuff. Also as, uh, in different forms too, from the Hyperion Ensemble where I played with. We played in places like Bergen and <laughs> Berlin together with this group. Um, but Yanku and Ilan Volkov um, collaborated on a concerto with the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra, which was performed in, in the Harpa, uh, it's the name of the Symphony Hall in Reykjavik, and it was an electric guitar concerto with me and the orchestra. It was Yanku's composition and Ilan conducting. It was crazy. It was the full orchestra with like 65 people and me with high-watt half-stacks in front in this plastic wall and a few high-watts in the audience, too. And um, uh, I also got a chance to, with Peter and with Ideologic, to work with him releasing music. So we did a vinyl of Pierre Sacre, which was the that piece I had originally um, been introduced with, uh, to his music by Trey. Um, yeah, I, I, I was thinking about him because it's, um, for me and my, uh, the story of how I've made music in highly collaborative nature, it's rarely like me as a soloist, you know, or a, uh, um, a solo, composer or uh, just my name, you know. It's, it's always with, uh, I, I'm working with people constantly and I love doing that and collaborating. And this was an example of how that can just lead in so many directions that are, it's like the, the frontier and the adventure of it. And I went to Romania, also he wanted, him and Anna wanted to 
do a workshop for that concerto. They're like, yeah, come to Romania, you stay with us. We have our country house and we have a, a place in Bucharest. And I'm like, yeah, I've never been there. Cause great, let's go. And went out there and it was like, we went out to the country house and it was a bit like a compound, <laughs> like a walled compound with about 20 dogs and an oil, uh, what do you call it, those towers where they're pumping oil? Derek, yeah, a couple of Derek's on the land. It was, I think it was Anna Maria's family or something, and this little tiny house. And I was, I'd signed on for like a week out there. So. <laughs> <laughs> those guys. <laughs> Luckily, there were some Vinobes uh, vineyards around, uh, which we enjoyed a lot of the produce of those vineyards over that week. Uh, we didn't really do any music, though. It was really bizarre. But, oh, this is another thing. This is another thing that made it to one of my lists when it was even longer than the one I sent you. Um, we were driving, that was also, Yonku would drive too, that, that was something. Um, we were driving into Bucharest, maybe at the end of the trip or something, and he was playing some uh, string quartet music, pretty loud in the car, was driving, hunched over, like scowling, like he, he looks like he's scowling all the time. He's got this incredible, um, visage with his eyebrow and he's very like intentful and, and we're driving and uh, he also has a hunch he's, he's an older guy like a hunch and black dyed black hair and black clothes and stuff and a paunch and, and uh, he didn't speak for like 30 minutes playing this string quartet music and they he turns to me do you love Beethoven? <laughs> <laughs> sure, Beethoven's fifth, or Ode to Joy, or whatever, you know, sure. But who doesn't, you know? It's like, do you know what this is? It's Beethoven string quartets. You need to listen to this stuff. It's the last stuff he was writing in his life when he was deaf, and, uh, it's really easy. He's like, this is my favorite music ever written. It's the most um, progressive out there music I've ever read or listened to. And that got me in a rabbit hole for a few years. And RDD Quartet um, has recorded a lot of those really fantastic um, um, versions. And uh, I don't know, I, I'm not very educated about cl classical music, actually. Um, like actual pre-20th century, um, and uh, he's right. That stuff is super out there. It remind, it's like um, some of those, um, some of those pieces are, they're really timeless and really, really inspiring. So, so Yonku, Yonku's around and he's doing music again and stuff and I'm trying to connect with him, but it's kind of, they're kind of those phone calls that just come at like two in the morning and then it's him speaking for 45 seconds and then hanging up. Okay. <laughs> so before Anna, before Anna Maria Avram passed away, like she would, communicating with her was more of a dialogue than a monologue. So it's been a little hard to connect with him again, but I hope, I hope to. One of the best things that anyone's ever said on the show was we had Steve Reich on really early on, kind of, and um, he talks really, really fast. Um, and he said, you know, the thing about a classic is it's news that stays news, right? Uh -huh. And it's like, right, it's like mm -hmm. music that was written 200 years ago that you can still discover, and you're like, damn, mm -hmm. you know, that still like, has that power, and it still has the power to entrance someone who's like on what you would think about as being on the bleeding edge and they're like damn mm -hmm. you know well it's like uh, studying linguistics and grammar and um, with languages I mean uh, those 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 structural forms are demonstrated through poetry in brilliant ways that doesn't age because it's it's part of the the yeah, it's part of the uh, entire uh, fundamental of, of the 
structural components, so yeah. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>